0: Decree of your will taking shape, coming to fullness, fruition, the perfect time in history. Every detail and aspect of our salvation that is fulfilled in Christ Jesus, our Savior King. The incarnate babe in manger who took on the call from his Father, stepping into flesh enduring the temptation this life sinlessly passing every test fulfilling the original covenant of faithfulness unto the father our second Adam bearing our punishment for us your righteousness Jesus Christ is thus imputed to our account When we place faith in the work that you accomplished in fullness on Calvary, sealed and secure in resurrection, and now arbitrated from the right hand of the Father upon your ascension. And we as subjects of your glorious kingdom, having submitted to your lordship and rule, confessing our sins and placing faith in our Savior King, now it pleases us to extol your holy name. I pray that the Spirit would be alive and present through the means of this service today to open up to the truths of the gospel so that we might better appreciate what was accomplished on Calvary and sealed upon your resurrection. Burn it, Lord, with indelible tongs, Lord Jesus, as the coal was taken from the altar, Touch to Isaiah's lips of old the message of truth upon our hearts this day, that we, we might realize, in spite of our unclean lips, we have been redeemed by Jesus Christ and his precious blood this day. It's in that holy name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. What a great privilege it is to open the Scriptures today and to set our minds upon the eternal truth infallibly preserved for us in God's holy word. Turn with me, if you would, in your Scriptures to Matthew chapter 28 today. Our Matthew series brings us to the climax of Christ's work in redemption as we explore this morning ten verses that are dedicated to to the event of Christ's resurrection from the grave in Matthew's Gospel. The title of this morning's message is Resurrection, Revelation, Resurrection, Revelation. We will see in this example of Gospel account in Matthew how the Bible records events such as this and what is a few aspects we will note as well of the particularity about the revelation of Scripture. The scriptures are a unique and unsurpassed, peerless book. The scriptures, all of them contain absolutely singular, powerful, supernatural ways of sharing with us God's holy truth. The further we dig and the closer we look, the more treasure we find as we behold the truth and how it is proclaimed. That will be part of what we intend to do today in this sermon that is, the aim of today's message is to provide a lesson in measuring glory by weight, not just by word count. That is to say, only ten verses are given to record the resurrection in Matthew's gospel. But these ten verses are weighty indeed. And as we consider them in their broader context, I would think we will see, see as much. That is, as we consider resurrection, revelation, and light of the weight of Scripture. With your Bible open to Matthew 28, would you stand with me out of reverence for the Word of God? And listen as I read these verses again from Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. Here we have the Holy Word of God. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, and worshiped him. And Jesus said to them, "Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me." This is the holy word of Christ. You may be seated. I've referenced in Matthew's gospel before the concept of arc, ARC, an arc that is the storyline The beautiful picture of Christ born, raised with his family, learning the things that you and I learn as a human being, toddler, young adult, adult. As he embraces his ministry at an early age, relatively speaking, he begins to proclaim the message of the kingdom. This message of the kingdom goes forth to the furthest reaches and the far corners of Judea places where the underprivileged and the outcasts reside, places that are not often graced with the important visitation and presence of figures like the Pharisee scribes or those who are celebrated for their intellectual weight or for their particular religious piety. Jesus went to those places proclaiming the kingdom of God. Every step of his foot carried with it fulfilled prophecy. We see this all the way through the scriptures. The gospel arc continues. He begins to prophesy during those times at specific and treasured moments with his disciples that he must go to the cross and endure the punishment that God the Father had intended that his Son endure for their sin, for your sin, and for mine. Disillusioned and not understanding, the disciples rub their eyes, so to speak, in bewilderment. Yet the events unfold like a sovereign book before them, and a page is turned, and Christ goes to Calvary. He's crucified. But as prophesied on the dot, three days later, we have our text recording the events of Christ risen from the dead. And these events are colored and emphasized. They're highlighted by particular details that are easy to miss at first reading or a cursory glance. But each one of them is dripping with gospel and greater revelatory weight. And that is what we will consider this day. As this gospel arc of revelatory fullness, if you will, comes to fruition or fulfillment to its crescendo, its apex, its zenith, in Matthew's account, we see the ministry of Christ gloriously showcased in many ways, in manifold ways. One example in the bigger picture of the book of Matthew is apparent as we consider one detail, angelic visitations. So here's an example of how to consider the weight of an event, not just you know, some journalistic chronology or the word count or something, uh, a way we might be more familiar with considering a text like a newspaper article or something. When an angel visitation comes, it signals to us, to us a moment of redemptive historical importance. We see this through the arc of Matthew's account of Christ's ministry. Think of it in Matthew 1, 18 through 25. The angel of the Lord, an angel of the Lord, enlightens, that is, brings the truth to Joseph and consoles him, says, do not be afraid. Enlightening and consoling him, the angel of the Lord takes on this role at the beginning, at the introduction, at the very moment when Christ enters into the consciousness of his parents. The angel reveals to Joseph that he need not be afraid. Do not fear, he says. He reassures him. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, angelic visitation, at the introduction to Christ's earthly ministry. This happened again, of course, for his wife, his bride-to-be, Mary, Luke 1, 26-38. The angel, in this case, Gabriel, he's named, he's deployed to Mary with a special mission. Gabriel reveals to her the significance of her role in the birth of our Lord. These are the brackets. This is the parentheses of history, if you will, where Christ is introduced, but consider this arc. At the beginning, Mary receives this angelic visitation from Gabriel, and once again, what does he do? He enlightens and he consoles her. He says to Mary, what? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, he says. Why? because God is about to do something significant and she is privileged among women because she will bear this significance in her own womb. Do not be afraid. For that which is conceived in you, he says to Mary, is from the Holy Spirit. And so in our text today, at the closing arc of Christ's ministry, as we consider the weight of the Gospel account and this one example, it should come as no surprise that the moment of Christ's resurrection is accompanied by yet another angelic visitation. We just read it. The angel of the Lord descends from heaven. After this earthquake, he comes down, he rolls back the stone, he sits on it, and he's going to offer consolation and enlightenment once again. This time for Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. He's going to reveal the truth of what they are beholding before them, and he's going to calm their fears by saying, Do not be afraid. Think of the gospel art continuing into the book of Acts, Acts 1, 6 through 6-11, men clothed in white robes, certainly angelic, celestial beings, angels, they appear right after Christ ascends, and as His incarnate form disappears into the clouds of glory, there is a quite a group of bewildered disciples who are left in His wake, no doubt wondering, what's next? and what do these men dressed in white raiment do these men these angelic uh, this angelic visitation what does it afford the followers of Christ in this moment they say again reassuring consoling and enlightening them this jesus will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven brothers and sisters in christ the ark of god's work in history the full ark is not yet complete although the ark of christ Earthly work and redemption is, indeed, finished. There will come yet another moment in our experience in the future, and everyone who has placed their faith in Christ, where He will return a second time. And this return of Christ, this redemptive historical moment, will be attended by an angelic visitation as yet unparalleled in many ways in redemptive history. The sky was full of heavenly hosts at Jesus' birth, saying, Jesus, Son of David is born in Bethlehem, go and see, and a few shepherds scramble to gather their things and run to that lowly manger. Well, one day, everyone who has fallen asleep in Christ will be called from the grave in a miraculous resurrection because of this event we read of today, and we will join with the angels and testimony and glorious throng, singing his praises as Christ returns in glory to redeem not just individual souls, But heaven and earth, all history and the future and the fullness of the price that he has paid will be fully manifest in our experience. And it will be attended once again by angelic visitation. And so when we see these angels appearing in the text, the word of God begs us to consider their weight. Something significant is going on here. This event, attending the resurrection, is one example how the Bible highlights the glories of the gospel. The resurrection account spans just 10 verses by word count in the text. Yet the glory of the event is illuminated across the entirety of Scripture. And so this morning I hope we can learn a bit of how to appreciate biblical revelation and how we can appreciate and consider its weight in our text today as we behold the greater biblical and theological context, not merely just counting the words. A an example of this, which I can't resist, but cross-references in John chapter 20. Um, I was listening to a, a sermon or some commentary online, and they were pointing out that men who studied the scriptures have identified certain themes involved with the resurrection account and John has another one that is weighty indeed though it's just a passing detail at first glance as we consider it in its fullness it really unfolds in glory and this is John 20 verse 12 and we could ask ourselves you know what did Mary uh, Magdalene and Mary see when they went inside the angel took them on a tour of the empty tomb it says in verse 11 in the parallel account Mary stood weeping outside the tomb as she wept she stood to look into the tomb What did she see? Verse 12 records, She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Think of it. Two angels, one at the head, one at the feet of the place where Jesus lay. And as you think about the significance, the weight of that image, does it not recall the Ark of the Covenant? There's the cherubim on the one side, the head as it were, the cherubim on the other, as it were. And what is in the center? The mercy seat. The Bible is glorious in its weight. And it is, no, it is no accident indeed that we see this picture in Scripture. It's drawing our attention to the ultimate mercy seat. The place where the only propitiatory shed blood that was effective for the cleansing of sins. The place where that was shed. The place, as it were, where Christ was laying was framed by these two live cherubim, as it were. Thus picturing the fulfillment of the Ark of the Covenant in redemptive history. It is finished. What the Ark prefigured has taken place in time. By the shed blood spilled from the body that was lain in this place, these angels signify is redemption and atonement. The mercy seat. Find the mercy seat in Christ and Christ alone. Another example of the weight of the gospel as we look more closely. There is some apologetic value to realizing this. What is the value of a message like this that seeks to inspire us to look more closely at Scripture? Well, to the unbeliever, those unfamiliar with Scripture, they may see things in Scripture, details that are recorded, and may interpret them by a mere human understanding. And it can be a great encouragement to your faith and a great gospel opportunity for them as you point to them something a little deeper. That happened to me this week. Someone uh, dismissed the account of David and Goliath as I was talking to them, thinking that, isn't it a little crass and, in fact, extremely grotesque that after Goliath is dispatched that David would take out a sword and go the extra mile and cut off the head of the enemy of God's people triumphantly like this? What in the world is that but a gratuitous display of horrific violence? Isn't that a little over the top? This is why... I can't take the Bible seriously, I was told. I told him to look more closely. Consider Genesis 3.15, it's another detail I've learned in my studies. Genesis 3.15, we have the gospel delivered to us in micro-seed form, if you will, and the promise to the woman is that one day you will bear a son and your seed, your son, will stomp on the enemy's head, the serpent's head. You'll crush it, your seed will crush the serpent's head, yet he will bruise your heel. And thus we have this redemptive historical picture of the gospel of a mortal head wound inflicted on the ultimate enemies of God. This happened at this moment in Matthew 28 when Christ was risen from the dead. He stomped on Satan's efforts to kill the Messiah, to stamp out his seed. And make no mistake, he was at work in the time of David and Goliath to do the same. But David, what is he called? He is... Or what is Christ called? Rather, the Son of David. So David, in the lineage, and indeed a type of Christ, inflicts a mortal head wound on this figure, this imposing, intimidating figure, seemingly, you know, invincible, uh, warlike figure that is opposing God's people. And as he inflicts that mortal head wound, we are reminded of the gospel, calling forth, reprising, recapitulating Genesis 3:15, yet prefiguring, preshadowing, uh, prophesying. Christ to come who would stomp on Satan's head in our text today. Those are just two other examples of the weight of scripture and how we can appreciate it in context. Let's look at a few more as God gives us grace to see them. Consider this heading, the glories of Jesus' resurrection displayed by means of the following. First of all, demonstration. Secondly, explanation. Thirdly, incarnation. In our text today, perhaps perhaps we can divide these 10 verses By considering the glory of Jesus' resurrection displayed, first of all, by means of demonstration. Secondly, explanation. Thirdly, incarnation. Demonstration. Matthew 28, verses 1 through 4. Notice the demonstration of the supernatural power of God in these events. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Just a few sentences there. But the theology and the imagery that is vacuum-packed into that package explodes with meaning as we consider its contextual weight. First of all, behold the following. All creation bows to this event, heaven and earth. Earth shakes and heaven invades. As we were preaching through this account a few messages ago, there was a title, Jesus, Lord at thy death. I took the title from the Christmas hymn that said, Jesus, that uh, proclaimed Jesus, Lord at thy birth. And with the hymn, that the hymn commemorates is that when Jesus was born, as we mentioned briefly earlier, the skies were filled with the heavenly host declaring his lordship. And And you have this juxtaposition, you have this helpless child, yet you have him announced by throngs of celestial servants and dignitaries sent from the almighty God to say the king of kings is here. And so Jesus, in spite of his diminutive state as this infant, little, helpless babe, was indeed Lord at His birth. The same could be said at His death. At His death, what happened? Well, it's in the prior chapter, verse or chapter 27, verse 51, we recounted how when Christ died, when He cried out again with a loud voice in verse 50 and yielded up His spirit, behold, the following happened, a demonstration of the glories of Christ at His death. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The next thing, the earth shook and the rocks were split. It is not uncommon at certain milestones of redemptive history when the significance of God intervening in the experience of sinners is taking place that the earth reels with the implications of the event and this happened at Christ's death. And so it is no surprise that the earth shakes once again at His resurrection. The earth shook at Sinai. The earth shook in judgment at the flood. At these moments of God's intervention, he chooses to demonstrate his glories in manifold ways, and among them, the shaking of the earth itself. goes on to say, even in his death, that the following was associated with this event. Tombs were opened, and many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. This man was Lord at his death, because again, consider the paradox or the juxtaposition, if you will, he's dying. But his death secures resurrection life for saints who had fallen asleep of old. And so after his resurrection, the Bible records in the same passage, they went into the holy city and appeared to many, Jesus Lord, at thy death. But now, of course, we have Jesus Lord at thy resurrection. And so we see heaven and earth testifying to the same and glorious demonstration. Behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And in this event, by these two signal uh, things happening, the earth shaking and angels descending from heaven, we have, as it were, all creation testifying to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Creation worshiping the Lord, heaven and earth, as it were, demonstrating that He has been raised and history will forever be changed. Our hope and future is eternally secure and Christ has defeated the last and more and, and most formidable of enemies. This is also the case theologically with miracles. What are miracles if not a suspension of God's normal and providential order in creation? The providential order of creation, the fact, for instance, that gravity works and planets revolve around larger bodies, and that photosynthesis happens when the chemicals interact with the sunlight that he provides, and rain that falls on the just and the unjust. Now these normal, uh, these normal order of nature is no less supernatural. Colossians testifies to the same. It is the sovereign hand of the Creator Himself intervening, upholding the universe by the word of His power. Yet there is this theological concept called miracle, where there is an intrusion, there is a brief suspension at significant moments of time, where that normal order pauses, bows if you will, to make room for the king. And the king sets aside for a brief moment that providential order and demonstrates a moment of significance by bringing an earthquake by the touch of his sovereign finger, or revealing to our mere physical eyes that which otherwise would be an otherworldly realm like creatures from the realms of glory, angels themselves. And so miracles testify to the hand of God in history. And this has been the case all through the scriptures. We recently recounted when there was a showdown, who is Lord, on Mount Carmel and Elijah cries out and a miracle intrusion of God's sovereign power consumes the sacrifice and the water as fire breathes from heaven, demonstrating that Yahweh is the one true God of His people, to the great shame, and to the death, in fact, and judgment of the false priests who wanted to deny the Lord and suppress the truth of His order and creation in their own unrighteousness. So again, it is no mistake, it is no accident, it is no surprise that as we weigh this resurrection account we see all creation, heaven and earth, and miracles attesting to the glories of Jesus' resurrection. Secondly, in these four verses, consider the authority of Christ represented. When we see this language, a coming of the Lord is invoked. The Greek word is parousia. You may have heard of that. There are these events of the Lord's coming in power, in judgment, in sovereignty to assert his authority at particular times in history. They're called parousias in the Greek or comings of the Lord. And the language here is reminiscent of that kind of an event. The angel of the Lord descends in verse 2 from heaven and comes and rolls back the stone and sits on it. There's a heavenly realm. There's a descent from the heavenly realm, a coming as it were. There's a rolling back and a sitting as it were in a place of authority and the place of honor and rule and reign and sovereignty that is pictured in this action. You see, this is weighty because earlier in the text, There was a seat of authority that was featured, but it was the seat of Pilate. Jesus stood before the governor. The governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? You know, and the court proceedings continue. They come before the seat of Pilate as it were, and he hears them, and he makes a judgment. We find, though, that this seat of mere transient, passing, provisional, worldly authority is immeasurably surpassed by the glory and the authority of God Almighty. That is to say, Pilate is Lord of nothing. Pilate serves at the pleasure of Christ. It appeared for a moment that the fate of Christ was in Pilate's hand, but Jesus Himself said in the book of John, you would have no authority unless it was granted to you by my Father. And so events proceed to demonstrate the superior, the ultimate, the transcendent power and authority of God. And that's the language that we see in the text today. There's a descent, an angelic deployment, if you will, from the realms of glory to intervene according to God's will and on His behalf. And this has a profound effect on the observers. It strikes fear to some degree in the hearts of even the faithful, Mary Magdalene and Mary. But what does it do to the emissaries of Pilate, the guards who represent the authority of Rome? They tremble and become like dead men. In verse four, for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. There was a bowing to the superior authority of Christ that had preceded this moment as well. Truly, this man was the Son of God. The centurion cries out as he watches this man die helplessly by the hammer that was in his own hand, so to speak, and the soldiers around him. Nevertheless, as he sees a demonstration of the glory of God intervening in his experience, he recognizes what has always been true that all authority is given to Jesus Christ, the King of kings. And for those who don't bow to this authority, they will be judged. And woe to those who condemn the Christ. Woe to those who agreed with the policies of Pilate and the plans of the Pharisees and the priests. Woe to those who, we talked about last week, the legacy of the unbeliever who concede to worldly authority, condemn Christian teaching, and conspire to preempt the gospel. Because see, then the other side of the coin, that's what's going on in the story. Verse 62 in chapter 27, the next day after this, the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before who? Before Pilate. They said, sir, a term of honor and respect. Sir, we beseech your authority, we concede to you. Remember how, who, that imposter said, well, he was still alive? Enemies of Christ. They call Christ, the true King of kings and Lord of lords, an imposter. They make their appeal to worldly authorities, hoping that he'll intervene for their purposes. Woe to all who take this position. Worldly authorities must bow before Christ or they will be judged by the same. They go on to condemn his teaching. They say, if the disciples take his body, spread the word that he's raised, the last fraud will be worse than the first. They were calling the work and ministry of Christ fraudulent, condemning the ministry, the teaching, the word of truth, the gospel. In fact, they go further, they try to preempt it. Verse 11, while they were going, behold, they heard the news of his actual resurrection. So what do they do? They scrape together a sum of money and they tell the soldiers, tell the people. His disciples came by night and stole away the body while we were asleep. If this comes before the governor's ears, they make it plain. There's no shortage of cash. Where that came from, they'll bribe him too. And against this frantic attempt by Christ's enemies... To deny Him conceding worldly authority, condemning Christian teaching, and conspiring against the gospel, we have in our text today a demonstration of the one true God and His ultimate authority vested in His risen Christ. And This is evident when this angel comes down from heaven, rolls back the stone, sits upon it, and blasts the guards backwards. Notice that the effect of this demonstration Was experienced by, will be experienced by all people. And this is clear by two representatives. There are two categories of people alive at any given time in history those who are faithful to the Lord, who look to Him for salvation, recognize they are sinners. And then there are those who trust in other means for their hope and stay. These two categories are represented in Mary Magdalene and Mary. They were the the faithful ones. They had followed Christ. They were the the few, the couple, the handful, the women that were there when he was crucified, when he was buried, when Joseph of Arimathea was carefully placing the embalmed body of Christ in the tomb that he carved out. They were there again at this moment witnessing this powerful event of angelic interaction at his resurrection as it were. But the guards were there too. And the guards were representatives of those who denied and were on the other side of the truth. Yet this demonstration of the glory of Christ and resurrection affected both categories. And so it will be at the end of time. Jesus has already prophesied it. You remember in Matthew 25, on into 26, we see this message, final judgment is prefigured, is declared, is prophesied in verse 31 of chapter 25. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all angels with Him, then He will sit On his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all nations. And he will separate people from another. One from another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And you know. The rest of the parable. The sheep will be placed at his right. The goats at his left. The sheep for salvation. And the goats for judgment. And in the weight of our text today. We see these events signified. In what is being demonstrated. Secondly. Secondly. The glories of Christ's resurrection are displayed not just by means of this demonstration, but also by explanation. The angel is responsible for this as we continue to read in verse 5 of chapter 28. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for He has risen as He said. Highlight those three words, at least virtually, in your Bible, as He said. Come see the place where He lay. Then go quickly and tell His disciples that He has risen from the dead, and behold, He is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see Him. See, I have told you. The glories of Jesus' resurrection are displayed by means of explanation. The angel is, in this case, preaching the gospel as it were. And this is not the only voice that, testified to this, that testifies to this event, but I want to remind you of another attending text. Turn with me briefly to Psalm 22. Again, in our series, we've mentioned in previous weeks, under a title, Psalm 22 Comes Alive. We read this text for our worship text this morning. That these events were no surprise to history if you believe what had been prophesied of old. We went through these specifics of what was going to happen in Christ's crucifixion and his death. Right down to nails piercing hands and feet. Counting his bones and his garments being wagered and gambled away as the soldiers cast lots for them. And we see in this metaphorical imagery that the powers and intimidating forces of the enemy surround him like ravenous beasts. But as we continue to read, we see Psalm 22 coming alive in our text today as the Messiah in first person cries from the lips of David, as it were, for salvation, that is for intervention from death. Verse 20, deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion, for you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. He goes on, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him and stand in awe of Him, all you offspring. And of course, it goes on to declare a future point in which verse 27 records, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And so this prophecy is taking place, and it's signaled by the message of this angel who preaches, if you will, the first post-resurrection sermon, saying that this should be no surprise. In the context of his words, this is happening as he said. That is, as Christ has declared, but even preceding that, that moment, there was Psalm 22 which indicated a suffering servant would come, that he would die at the hands of wicked men, that he would suffer mockery, scorn, and this horrific execution, but he would cry out to the Lord. And the Lord would intervene on his behalf. And now we see it taking place before our eyes in Scripture as the gospel and the glories of the resurrection are displayed by explanation from the mouth of the celestial messenger, this angel who declares... That he is not here. That is, Jesus is no longer in this grave, in this sepulcher, in this place of death. He has risen as he said. There was word preceding Christ's explanation that he fulfilled. And we see this by one example in Psalm 22. We'll touch on that passage again in closing. But secondly, the angel is clear that there is the word also self-disclosed. This explanation is not unique to his declaration. He's simply reminding the women of what Christ had already said. As he said, he would be crucified and he would be raised. Again, just by way of reminder, these are those moments in Jesus' ministry that he refers to and we ought to highlight in our memory and understanding. Matthew 20, verse 17 is one of those times. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, He took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. This happened in such specific detail. It is simply awesome. And they will condemn him to death, he goes on to say in verse 18. We've seen this happen in chapter 27. Verse 19, and deliver him over to the Gentiles. We saw that unfold before us as well. In fact, Gentile guards presumably are standing before His tomb, even in our text today. They will deliver Him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. But let us not forget the last phrase, and He will be raised on the third day. Just as He said, the angel announced. Don't you remember? This is happening as He said. There was a certain... Confusion and blindness that no doubt, because this event was so unprecedented in the experience and understanding of the disciples, they couldn't really comprehend, they couldn't grasp. This was very evident in Matthew 16, another one of these moments. And listen to Peter as he, the candid spokesperson, uh, comes to some errant conclusions and then receives a reprimand from his master, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. So there it is. Jesus had prophesied. As he said, these events would take place. Verse 22, this is Peter's response. He took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And certainly one thing that Peter was not setting his mind upon was the last phrase of Jesus' prophecy, as if it just went in one ear right out the other, bounced off the fisherman's cranium. Jesus had said he would not just be killed and suffer, but on the third day he would be raised. Peter no doubt could imagine his Messiah dying. Everyone was afraid of death but there was a category as yet beyond his experience that he could not comprehend, and that was that a dead man could rise from the dead. Jesus had declared it, it happened indeed in our text today, and so this is another place that the angel is referring to when he says he is not here, he has risen as he said. As he told Peter, as he expounded to the disciples, and as he wrote under the inspiration of his spirit, to those who went before, even David who wrote Psalm 22. This is the glory of the resurrection displayed by explanation. Now there's another key to interpretation and for reading the Bible herein contained. Notice how Peter, prior to the resurrection, couldn't understand what Jesus was saying. That is, the Bible comes alive when you realize the gospel truth. If you want to know where where to start in your Bible study, start with the truth of Christ. Buried, crucified, buried, and raised for your transgressions. As we see this kingpin of understanding, this hinge of understanding in Scripture, we can understand better the whole. And sure enough, when the Spirit used these events and the experience of the disciples to illumine, again, enlighten and console them through angels and otherwise, all of the sudden their understanding awakened with a glorious sunrise of understanding Yes, this is what He said. He has now done in time what He prophesied to all, what we couldn't understand, we have now experienced in Him. And so do we, by the Spirit's use of the Word of God this day. If you believe that these things happen to Jesus and that in so doing He is your Savior and your Lord. That dawning of understanding by the Spirit of God as you read and comprehend the Scriptures, this miracle of awareness, of enlightenment and consolation as it were, will open up like a key the rest of Scripture in time. And you will begin to see the glorious weight of all the testimony of God's revelation underscoring the glories of Christ's work and the glories of God's plan and the glories of our promised future. Finally, under explanation, we have the word preceding. Psalm 22 is an example. We have the word self-disclosed in the words of Christ himself and his ministry. And we have the word commissioned. The final thing is instructions. Go and tell. After the angel said he's not here, he's risen, he shows them the place where he lay. So now they, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, are certifiable eyewitnesses of this event that Jesus had prophesied, and now they are on mission, verse 7. Then go quickly and tell His disciples that He has risen from the dead. And behold, He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see Him. See, I have told you. Christ, of course, reiterates. There several times this commission, this instruction, this commandment is reiterated in this text. And chiefly so in the Great Commission that is soon to follow. But in this, we are told that as we receive explanation as Christ's servants of what He has done, That message is not just for personal consolation, although it is that. This perfect love of Christ realized in the heart of a believer casts out all fear. Those who were once, as Hebrews declares, declares, captive to fear of death suddenly don't fear death anymore because they see by this event their eternal life is secure. But that is meant not just for mere consolation, though it is that. It is confidence, it is faith-building comfort, but it is also a commission. Come and see and go and tell. That was the basic instruction. That was the basic experience of these women here as the precursors of all faithful of disciples who would follow. Come and see the gospel. Go and tell the lost. That was the commission. The explanation comes with instruction. Finally, this morning, let us consider how the glories of Jesus' resurrection are displayed not just by means of demonstration and explanation, but Incarnation. Christ himself in flesh. Not exactly the same flesh as he once had, but now his resurrected body. Yet just as human is going to appear to them in their experience, and so in this account, the glories of Christ's resurrection will be underscored. They will be revealed by Christ appearing to them himself. And this is certainly the high point of this record as we read in verse 9, and behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. Jesus met them and said, greetings. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it just an awe-inspiring revelation indeed that Christ was so humble that he stooped so low that he set aside his deserved glory, as it were, veiled it, better said, for a time in the incarnation, to make himself known to obstinate idiots like Peter and you and me. But we see this trend continuing. Christ in his incarnate form, though resurrected and though now rightly, having ownership of that throne before the ancient of days prophesied in Daniel 7, which he would soon accrue as he ascends in just 40 days, is taking moments out of his glorious schedule, as it were, it could be said that way, To reveal himself to just two women. And to do so in simple words of greeting. Hello. And their eyes jump out of their head. Their jaw falls to the floor. And they embrace their Lord and Savior. Fully God and fully man. Revealing the truth of resurrection personally to them in His incarnate form. This is a personal interaction. He meets them and says, Greetings. Incredible indeed. This personal interaction continues and soon these women are worshiping Him. And this is real worship. This is a tangible embrace of the incarnate resurrected Son of God. There is every ground to refute all kinds of heresies in our text today. Some want to say that Jesus is the concept of the ideal human, that if we embrace the great philosophical potential or great psychological potential within our constituent being, we can one day be more like the ideal human. It sounds really profound, but it is empty, it is vapid, it is heresy. Jesus is not this concept of ideal human in this glorious spiritual myth. Jesus is fully God, fully man, invading history in real time at a date on the calendar by which we mark our time where he intervened in personal interaction with real people representing his personal interaction, bridging the ineffable expanse between a holy God and sinful man. The one mediator, high priest, through his torn flesh made access to everyone for whom He intercedes as our glorious fulfillment, the priesthood of old, always interceding for us, believer, if you are in Him today, before the Father. This is what's pictured here as Jesus personally interacts. And notice the faith that had been planted as fruitful seed in the heart of these two women blossoms into worship, greetings, and they came up to Him, took hold of His feet, and worshiped him, Jesus, fully God. Fully man, he has feet. Fully God, he receives worship. Fully man, he says greetings, their ears hear it. Fully God, he will assume them into glory on the final day. By the same power that he raised himself from the dead. Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Echoing those words of consolation from the angels who had preceded him, Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me." A brief note on feet. The significance of Christ's feet cannot be overstated, and all of Matthew testifies to the same. We go back to Matthew 4 and we see. What is condensed into our text today, consider the weight of this moment. What feet are they grabbing exactly? These are the feet that fulfilled prophesy by merely walking and declaring the message of the kingdom in Matthew 4, and then continuing on in glorious representation of the messianic prophecies being fulfilled in their ears and eyes as he heals the sick, preaches the message of the kingdom, the dead are raised, the paralytics are healed, the dumb speak and the blind see. Now he had heard that John says Matthew four twelve had been arrested, he, Jesus, withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea and the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way by the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light and for those dwelling in the region, the shadow of death on them, and shadow of death on them, a light has dawned from that time. Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is by at hand. Notice verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. He bids them what? He says to them, Follow me. I will make you fishers of men. The feet of Jesus were plodding along. They were purposefully advancing according to the perfect decree of Almighty God to bring the gospel to these outlying regions, fulfilling the word of old when Zebulun and Naphtali heard the word of God. As the physical feet of the Messiah became dusty with the duty of the call, as he brought the message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But more than this, he bids his disciples to follow. He is walking, His feet are moving towards the purposes for which the Father had intended. And He calls to His disciples, join me, follow these feet unto glory. And so they do. And so we do today. At the point in time of the Gospel of Matthew 28, these feet had been lots of places by this time. They had received the dust of His mission given to Him by the Father and they had traveled to the outlying regions. But more than this, these feet had been pierced, as Psalm 22 declared, by the nails of God's intended purpose for him to bear the sin of the elect. These feet were now scarred with the implements of torture that justified and washed away the sins of Mary Magdalene and the other Mary as they worshipped him. These were the same feet that were anointed with the hair for burial by the Mary that had preceded them in anticipation of what we have just read in the gospel. These are the feet of Jesus. And as they hold his feet, they worship him. And no doubt, as faithful servants and saints, they realize these truths as they see the resurrected and risen Lord. Finally, the incarnate Savior, after receiving their worship, after interacting personally, he comforts them. He says, do not be afraid, but notice the basis of this comfort rests upon the reality of adoption and the spiritual family. He says, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Let us close by turning to Hebrews 2, which ties together this passage and Psalm 22, and the fact that Christ, in just two phrases, has given to us glorious theological truth. My brothers. It is because Christ calls us His brothers that we have hope of resurrection ourselves. It is because of the family relationship whereby by God's adoption we are counted in His household that we have any hope. It is because of the love of the Father that was first set upon us whereby we love Him that we have any hope in the future. And when Christ consoles them by saying, do not be afraid on the basis that you are my family, these words indeed cannot be plumbed for the riches and the beauty and the depth of all they contain. However, Hebrews 2 does expound to some degree. Listen to what the author says in verses 10 through 17. For it was fitting that he, of course, speaking of Jesus, For whom and by whom all things exist, excuse me, this is God the Father at this point. For whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, there is Christ, perfect through suffering. Verse 11 For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Pausing there a moment, Jesus is not ashamed to call His disciples brothers because He has bridged the gap of their sinful distance upon His work on Calvary that has now come to its fullness in His resurrection. The author of Hebrews goes on, verse 12, saying, "'I will tell of your name to my brothers,' direct citation from Psalm 22. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Those words placed in the mouth of Christ as the first person. We are his children. We are his brothers if we believe in him. Verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. Remember, the incarnate Messiah? He shared in our flesh and blood and thereby purchased the ability for us to be His children, having borne the sin that we deserve, becoming a sacrifice where His torn flesh, incarnate flesh, absorbed the wrath of God. He Himself likewise partook of the same things, goes on to say, and through His death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And notice, this is even better than the angels, verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation, that means wrath-absorbing sacrifice, for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And it goes on to by saying, addressing the church, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly call, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. And so we, what do we see the author of Hebrews doing? He is expounding on the glories of resurrection, that are contained sometimes in just a word or phrase in Matthew 1 through 10. And he is reminding us when we read the scriptures to don't just count the words, but to consider their weight. And as we do, the implication and the benefits, the glories of our salvation will unfold as so many riches. There is no way we could comprehend or contain them all, but they will spur us on to hold the feet of our Messiah and to worship Him, looking forward to the day when we will be raised with Him. Let us close in prayer. Oh, Father, we thank You for the opportunity to consider the weight of Your Holy Scripture. I pray that You would write these truths upon the table of our hearts, that we might not sin against You and we might not soon forget them. Help us, Lord, to realize the deep and profound power of Your work in history and Your Word as it's recorded that shapes our future as we trust in you. Lord, I pray that you would reach out with the message of the gospel as we come and see and then go and tell to draw others, our children, friends, family, associates, coworkers, as many as you would call through our faithfulness into the sheepfold. I pray, Lord, that we would have the great privilege of joining the eyewitnesses of old by saying, I have beheld the gospel, listen to the power of Christ's blood to save and all that you might be glorified and your kingdom might advance even in this generation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.